refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Welcome to another episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. My name is Clark Hollers. And I'm Serge Antonin. And we want to tell our listening audience, first of all, as always, we thank you very much for listening to this podcast. This is the 100th episode of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. I want to thank my co-host, Serge. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And today's episode is going to be a discussion on how this came to be and an update on some of blast from the past. Well, I'd like to let you know that we are not discontinuing because Clark sounded like we were discontinuing. Like, I'd like to thank you. No, we'd just like to say that we are continuing. We're happy to be here with you and I with Clark. And the fact that we can celebrate this milestone together. And you hear a lot of people say all the time when they're partners with somebody, that they're like family. Well, Clark and I have become like family, even though sometimes I'm his dysfunctional nephew who's got, <laughs> you know, and I consider him my cantankerous unk. Uh, we appreciate everything that we do for each other and everything that our listeners have done for us to help us reach this milestone. So thank you very much. Well put, Serge. This came about, this podcast really came about because uh, Serge and I were friends, and we would talk almost daily on criminal justice matters. And one day, Serge said, I wish I had a tape recording of the last half hour. I'd play it back because I like some of the points I made, Clark. I like some of the points you made, Clark, and so forth. So we thought about it, and of course, COVID hit. That gave us, uh, gave me and Serge some downtime. We learned how to do it, and uh, Serge put up with uh, me getting ready to throw all the equipment in the dumpster more than once. And me in and out of guitar centers. No, Clark, wait, I'm going to find out tomorrow. <laughs> we, uh, anyway, uh, thank God for Google yeah. and the ability to, to learn how to do this. And we're, we're proud of this. Listen, Serge and I do 100% of the production of this episode. As every episode, we learned how to get it up. It's been listened to on every continent in the world. 22,500 downloads as of today, and it's been an interesting process. With the exception of Antarctica, but hey. Is that true? We don't have an Antarctica? Oh, no. my. If anybody knows somebody in Antarctica, please. <laughs> please. I think I know a snowmobile repairman please out there. Please get them to listen to our <laughs> I can podcast. Shoot a link to. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Almost every continent. Yeah. So we thought we'd update you. It's 100 episodes. We thought we'd update you on a couple of the episodes we've done that we've never told you the follow-up. One of the first episodes we did was on the murder of a Charleston police officer, Cassie Johnson, who was responding to an illegally parked car call and killed in the line of duty. The man who was arrested for killing her is named Joshua Phillips. He received 40 years in prison for the shooting death of uh, Charleston police officer Cassie Johnson. Uh, Rest in peace. And that's a well-deserved 40 years. Yeah, really, really. Serge, you want to tell us about the Karen Nazario update? Karan Nazario. I'm he sorry. Was the, I'm that's sorry. okay. He was the uh, National Guardsman who was stopped in full uniform and pepper sprayed by uh, 
a set of police. And where were they? In Virginia, Clark College? In Virginia. And anyway, he has since been awarded a settlement of $3,685 tax-free. Serge, just to, just to be slightly correct you, it wasn't a settlement. This is what the jury awarded. This oh, my a, goodness. This went to a jury. <laughs> um, honestly. Well, you see how little they thought of him. Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you, that was an interesting case because there there was a – I guess there was hesitancy on his part that I guess the jury factored in that he might have caused – he might have caused part of the problem. Okay. He had a tag. There was something wrong with his tag or yeah, something. Yeah, we discussed that. Like, uh, But he, apparently the dealership had put it Correct. in that place. Correct. But, inside the rear window of the vehicle rather than in the, the place on the rear where the tags are, a hard tag is supposed to go. Uh, the next thing we want to update you on is we talked about a Project Exile in Baltimore City. Project Exile was a, a project of the United States Attorney's Office in Baltimore and elsewhere around the country but where the United States Attorney's Office prosecuted gun crimes that ordinarily would be prosecuted at the local level. So when we did our research for today's episode, I I looked up what happened with Project Exile. What could we tell our listeners? Here's what I can tell you. There is nothing written about Project. I have more of the same. Uh, No update on, remember, there were big press conferences held. This is going to make the streets safe, so on and so forth. Well, we see the streets haven't gotten any safer, so. Exactly. Well, the assistant, I'm sorry, the United States attorney at that time was her, H-U-R, and United States attorney, her, is in the news this week because he is the special prosecutor assigned by the United States Department of Justice to investigate Biden and his uh, classified documents case. He is the attorney responsible for saying that Biden is an elderly man with a poor memory. <laughs> so he has uh, caused quite a stir politically in the United States and uh, made our lives more interesting. Now, everyone remembers the murder of Gabby Petito at the hands of her boyfriend, Brian Laundry. Well, his parents have never been charged with a crime. However, they are being sued for emotional distress by the family of Gabby Petito, and they are supposedly facing a civil lawsuit that'll be going to trial in May of this year, 2024. One of the interesting things, Serge, is they gave a deposition where they admitted that their son, Brian, had told them Gabby was gone and he needed a lawyer. And I don't know enough about the what statutes might apply, but I think not telling Gabby Petito's parents that is outrageous. I think so, too. They don't and, want me on that jury, I can tell you that. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to be on that jury, Clark. I'll just be now, of course not, but I, I mean, it's yeah, just, yeah, I, got I, I just feel like it's an awful thing to do to yes, another indeed. family. Yes, indeed. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the fact that Baltimore police officer Keona Holly was murdered in, really, talk about cold blood. I mean, just sitting in a cruiser and a guy came up and killed her in Baltimore. The accused killer is named Elliot Knox. He claimed he was incompetent to stand trial. The judges ruled him competent to stand trial, and uh, that trial is in the future. We don't have a trial date yet, but uh, we will keep you posted on that. And hopefully he goes away a long time. Well, if, if I always say that assuming he did it. In other words, I, you know, I, I'm a cynic about oh, I agree. trusting so assuming- – 
You're right. I, maybe I trusting the government too guilty much. until proven innocent. I get it. Right. Well, you say guilty until proven innocent. That's what the system really is. It's supposed to be. <laughs> I'm sorry, innocent, innocent until, until proven, proven guilty. guilty. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but you said it the right that, way. That was a Freudian slip. Yes, it well, not so much a slip. <laughs> Serge, uh, one of the favorite, your favorite people's been in the news of late, Marilyn Mosby. Oh yeah, that's right. I love she. <laughs> Marilyn Mosby was convicted in two federal trials. Miss Mosby is to be sentenced in May. They didn't sentence her after the first guilty verdict. They decided they'd wait till the second one. I don't know why, but hey, you know, I guess it'll make for good good news coverage. The next thing I'll update our listeners on is the case of Kashif Khan. We've told our listeners Kashif Khan to remind everybody was the three-time Maryland State Trooper of the Year, twice at the barrack level, once at the state level. He was accused by the Maryland State Police of making a false statement on a police report. The alleged false statement was what's called validation of the location of a traffic stop. Now, I don't want to get too hyper-technical here, but a validation of a traffic stop is done by somebody called a PCO, Police Communications Officer. In the Maryland State Police, they are so understaffed that even the busiest barracks in Maryland, even on weekend nights, sometimes don't have a police communications officer. They have a barrack commander who's typically a sergeant who's serving as the duty sergeant as well as the PCO. The Maryland State Police require that a PCO encode from a cheat sheet a location pre-selected from a list of locations for every incident that occurs in Maryland. Now, what that means is when they validate the location of a traffic stop, it's only approximately correct. God only knows why they do that. I've represented this guy for years. I came, nobody knows why they do it this way. It's just the arcane system of the state police. Uh, TFC Khan had made a traffic stop on the Anacostia Freeway. The Anacostia Freeway is a very unusual freeway for this reason. It goes from Maryland into the District of Columbia across a boundary designed by George Washington. However, there's no sign that says you've left Maryland and you've entered the District of Columbia. When TFC Khan made an arrest and finished his shift, he saw that his case had not been validated. A little bit unusual, but Khan was working overtime as a PCO after his shift as an officer. So he validated his own card, and he validated it correctly. He picked the closest location to the location of the traffic stop. Unfortunately for Khan, the traffic stop was in D.C. All validation locations are in Maryland. Khan was uh, accused by uh, internal affairs of writing a false report for that validation, I Even though just, 90% of their reports are false. They're all, well, first of all, every single validation on every single report's inaccurate. No, I'm talking about the uh, internal affairs. Oh, well, uh, yeah. Infernal repairs. Well, let me tell you, they. this is the same case where internal affairs wrote a report saying they tape recorded the interrogation of Kashif Khan. Then they said before the hearing they couldn't find the tape recorded interrogation. Then they testified it was never recorded. Uh, Little did they know, Kashif had made one of his own. <laughs> yep, which is the subject of a ongoing Department of yes, Justice yes, yes. investigation. Gotta love it. Uh, here's what happened. I lost the hearing board 
Kashif and I lost the hearing board. I lost the appeal to the circuit court. I lost the appeal to the appellate court. And I filed a petition for writ of certiorari asking the Maryland Supreme Court to hear the case on the issue, the issue is that the substantial evidence test this is a test in Maryland where... Hey, even Muhammad Ali lost a few fights, Clark Ollis. You're still the greatest of all times. And his picture hangs as as above my... There you go. Uh, stairway. You're all right. Yep. Keep on punching, Clark Ollis. One of my heroes. So we're still punching. The bell's, the bell's ringing in the ninth round. I'm coming out of the corner swinging. There you go. And, uh, but I, you know, I hope our Supreme Court grants certiorari in the case. If they do, uh, we'll live to fight another round. If they don't, then the Kashif Khan case is over, except for the federal civil rights lawsuit that he and others have filed against the state police. And so, I, I find that refreshing in a sense because so many people are afraid of these agencies and they don't take it as far. They give up because, you know, most lay people, while they half the time don't disagree I mean, don't agree with some of the decisions of these agencies. They always assume that the agency's right. And this case has glaring, glaring examples of why the agencies are not always right. Serge has attended some of these uh, administrative hearings. And I still have nightmares. And it's, it really is, I, I wish in a sense, like right now there's this case going on in Georgia where the lawyers are being questioned in the uh, <laughs> Trump case. Yes. And everybody's got a comment. Well, I wish they would I wish they'd video and display some of these administrative hearing boards so the public sees what a farce they are. What it's a, scary. What an absolute abject failure of justice it is. And in Maryland, unfortunately, when you lose an administrative hearing there's something called the substantial evidence test. If an appellate court can find substantial evidence in the record to support the findings of the administrative hearing board, they, they simply ratify it. The substantial evidence test means if a reasoning mind could come to that conclusion, that's sufficient. And one of the things I say in my petition for writ of certiorari is in Maryland, a reasoning mind could conclude that cold weather causes colds. Well, it doesn't. But if a reasoning mind came to that conclusion, it would be endorsed all the way to the Supreme Court of Maryland. So let's uh, let's hope the Supreme Court grants cert in this case and Kashif can have another bite at the apple. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to the uh, officers in Memphis who – The spider team? No, they weren't the spider team. They were the scorpion squad. Oh, that's the right. Scorpion the spider unit. team yeah, yeah. is Maryland State Police drunk driving Yeah, okay, team. okay. That's right. It's all pretty scary Scorpion, stuff yep, yep. Uh, Tyree Nichols, uh, they're responsible with the death of Mr. Tyree Nichols in Memphis, and they are going to be tried in federal court come September. So barring any kinds of catastrophes or postponements, we'll see them get their day in court. Serge, maybe you can remember and enlighten me. I've forgotten the facts. A guy named Edward Bronstein was arrested in California. Yes. Seven CHP officers have been charged with involuntary manslaughter in his. Well, they pinned him down to try to help a nurse draw blood in, in that, reference to a DUI case. Too. The yes. nurse has been charged too. Yep. I, I mean, I, I, I still think that. it's it absurd. A, it was a drunk driving case. Yes, it was a drunk driving case, and a man lost his life. So, I, I think it was absurd, 
at the end of the day. And in this day and age that we're in, what's the update on his case? The law doesn't trump life. So who cares if you lose one? You don't you don't want to take someone's life, you know? If you lose a case, what I mean when I say who cares if you lose one? Well, Mr. Bronstein's family has been paid twenty four million dollars in a civil settlement. Twenty four million All for right. his for his passing. And uh, now the, some might say that's too much. Some like me will say that's not enough. I mean, you never get the life back of a loved one. I wouldn't want my kids to have to move on without me prematurely because some cops decided that I should give my blood in a garage on the floor. Like, that doesn't even make logical sense. Well, I remember sense, the man. video of this was pretty shocking. Yeah, it was. And the audio that we put on um, the episode of him yeah. screaming at the yeah. top of his lungs. Yeah, it was very bad. Oh, yeah, it was disturbing. Um, anyway, the seven police officers and the nurse are all awaiting trial. The trials have not begun. They're each facing four years in prison which is uh, far less than, than police officers frequently face in these cases. I think so. Particularly if they get charged. I think they're charged in the state system. So that's why the sentence is relatively low. Shoot, we saw Marilyn Mosby try to give a guy more than that for a slap. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to explain that to our audience at some that's point. That's an inside joke. At some point in the future. <laughs> it, God bless Marilyn Mosby, wherever she is. Serge, what's our next observation about the, since we've begun this podcast? Daniel Penny, the Daniel Penny Jordan Neely case, which we did in uh, the, what was it, Death on the F Train? J Train, I think. J Train, one of those trains in New York, where the the former Marine, in defense of, or arguably in the defense of other p- train riders, choked Jordan Neely to death on the floor of the train, and it was caught on video. That that case is supposed to go to trial in the fall of 2024. I, 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 I really feel sorry for Daniel Penny. Uh, obviously, nobody wants this, uh, wants somebody to, Jordan Neely or anybody else to die. But I still feel pretty strongly that Daniel Penny's heart was in the right place. I think he was trying to protect, and there's one of the interesting aspects of the case is Penny's white, Neely is African-American. Which explains a lot, and it proves that we're still, all of us, black, white, what have you, are, are still being held hostage by the evil deeds done by our ancestors in this country, or people, our, our founding fathers, if you will. Well, I think one thing that Daniel Penny may have going in his favor is the video shows that Mr. Neely was also being detained by an African-American man at the time of the choking by Penny. And there's an African-American woman who had children on the, on the train, subway train, who has made repeated public statements to the effect that she was very, very scared and was glad that Penny intervened. That uh, Mr. Neely, who apparently suffered mental health problems, was on the train talking about he, he didn't care if he died that day and so forth. And I guess that was intimidating to this woman. And I could see why it would be. Let's let's face it, Clark Owens. I don't think at the end of the day, anyone thought that Jordan Neely was going to die. And I agree. I don't think that Daniel Penny, no one can 
intelligently say that Daniel Penny woke up that day and said, hey, I'm going to jump on the train, play Batman, and I'm going to choke a man to death. You can almost guarantee he he had intended to be about whatever his business was supposed to be that day, and now his life will never be the same. Win or lose, his life will never be the same. And if he's got any kind of heart, win or lose, it'll never be the same. Uh, I guess we should talk about uh, something that is going on at a macro level, and we've done a number of episodes that have touched upon this, but Serge, in my opinion, our country is descending into anarchy and chaos. Now, are we talking about shoplifting or are we talking about mass shootings, like the one that occurred in Kansas City the other day? Funny you say that. The mass shooting problem in this country is outrageous. Outrageous. And it's just hard to believe that we have come to accept mass shootings as just a fact of life, and most recently with the Kansas City Chiefs celebration. And the scariest thing about that one, or any of them, is when you try to determine what the cause was, and you say, well, what can we live with? Can we live with a guy who was in his basement planning some kind of domestic act of terror, terror, written a manifesto, and has a bunch of guns and ammo and says, today's my last day, I'm going to do it. Can we live with that or can we live with some young men who can't control their emotions, can't settle things via words or fisticuffs, who say, you know what, I've got a personal dispute with this guy, so I'm going to pull out a handgun or rifle, because you know I consider them all assault weapons, Clark Collins, pull out a handgun or rifle and shoot into a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people because my feelings were hurt. I, I don't know which one, well, we're living with them both, but I don't, if you understand what I mean, I don't, I don't know what is less acceptable because we've made them all pretty much acceptable, Clark. One of the things that I think we've done in our country is, and I, I think people do it as a way to survive kind of to survive mentally yeah is we've normalized these things we we have a language about it now active Absolutely. active shooter we have active shooting training now in schools for children there are active shooting plans in every patrol division in the United States mm-hmm. there's active shooter plans for hospitals active shooter plans for most federal facilities active shooter plans for courthouses and we've really normalized the fact, in other words, we sit here and we know to a moral certainty, Serge and I, that this podcast now in February of 2024, by December of 2024, there will have been any number of mass shooting events in the United States. Yes. It'll probably be another concert in Las Vegas or somewhere. It'll be, some will be uh, Palestinians angry at uh, what's going on in Gaza. Some will be domestic terrorists angry for one reason or another. (laughs) And some will just be criminals and some will be just criminally insane people who do horrible things. The Ovalde school shooting, for example. Well, I'll tell you what, if you would ask me what the beginning of a fix looks like, to me, it looks like bringing back firing squads for these crimes. And 
if the government were to say or enact a law or a bill that would say if you commit, first they'd have to define what this act of mass shooting was because you know how we discussed it. No one even has a, you know, the FBI has one definition, so-and-so has one definition. We need a concrete definition. And if you are proven to have committed this act, and regardless of what your motivation is, it's domestic terror. If you have committed this act, justice should be swift and final. And you should, and if you're old enough to be charged with the crime, you should be old enough to die by firing squad. Serge, I, I have a, so many reactions to that. I'm not sure where to begin. Just jump in, Clark but Collins. but one is one of the things that most scares me about the death penalty is that it's administered by our government. This is true, but our government is is to blame for so many of these problems. So I don't like the idea of the government now having the ability to put citizens to death. The government itself is at fault in a lot of these situations. Now, I'm not saying the government causes mass casualty events. I am saying, however, that there are thousands of people in the United States who have authority and make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and give us excuses for why our children can't read in the city. In other words, I'm being serious, Serge. I mean, these departments of education take millions upon millions of dollars and the children can't read and they have millions of dollars available for mental health and the children don't get mental health treatment. Yeah. The government is taxing alcohol and drugs and, in my opinion, polluting our country with fentanyl and letting it happen. You've got 50,000 plus people a year dying from fentanyl overdoses by a government that can't close the border uh, in the South. And so to me, if we're going to bring back firing squads for these misfits, who and don't get me wrong, what they do is horrible. And I frankly lose no sleep if the police take them out. And I'm being candid. So it's hard to say, well, then the death penalty is outrageous. I understand why people would want the death penalty. Absolutely. But if you're doing it because the death penalty deters, then I think we need the death penalty for government officials who allow— Whoa, easy there, Clark Ellers. I know. Well, well, but my point being, if the government's going to have the uh, hold to itself the power of life and death over the citizens, perhaps this—look, let me put it this way. I'm not really a proponent of the death penalty in most situations, and I don't consider myself a radical— But P.M. Smith says our government's no longer scared of us, and that's part of the problem. There you go. And I believe it. This guy, Secretary Mayorkas. uh, And they continue to make us scared of each other, though. That's the beauty of what they're doing. I mean, it it sickens me. Yes, they continue to. Look, I think if you want to talk about a mass casualty event, I think allowing fentanyl across the southern border creates a mass casualty event in the United States. It's not 20 people at a time dying. It's one by one by one in basements. And garages and bedrooms across the United States, 50,000 While I agree with that, but the fear that is perpetuated by 20, 30 people being shot at a time is unacceptable. What I'm saying is this. Mayorkas has no fear. That's what I'm saying. So the point is he can just lie to us about that border. That border is wide open. Drugs, human trafficking, terrorists, everybody's coming across that border. And we're supposed to say 
that the misfit who shoots up his high school, and don't get me wrong, terrible crime, and these misfits need to be incarcerated. I'm not saying otherwise. And the parents need to be held responsible and the parents provide them with guns. But we're also providing a culture that it promotes, as far as I can tell, death. Well, it just seems like one more recipe pulled from the anarchist cookbook, Clark Ollers. Scare everybody into just being scared. So everybody is scared of everybody. Let's continue with shoplifting. Speaking of anarchy, how the country is just devolving into a den of thieves, for lack of a better way to put it. And we discussed that in an episode and nothing seems to be getting any better. And I was just reading an article the other day. We're seeing an uptick in migrants being involved in shoplifting rings, for lack of a better term. Who knows what the fix for that is, Clark Ollers? Not only do we have domestic shoplifters, but we've got now shoplifters who break into the country, for lack of a better term, and then get shipped to a city of the mayor's choosing. I I don't even understand. One of the things about shoplifting that I think is probably underreported is this. It It is not only a problem for consumers, meaning obviously all of us pay the price for the shoplifter. Yes. But I also think that at some point, it begins to take its toll on civics in this way. I've long been of the belief that my neighbors don't need to lock their front doors to protect themselves from me. Because I was raised that it's immoral to steal. You know, I don't go into my neighbor's house and take their property because it's mm-hmm. wrong. But there, be, there comes a point where it's a tipping point where if the law is not enforced against anybody for any reason that steals, it becomes harder and harder for me to, to rationally put money in the meter when I park. Because you start to say, this is, this is crazy. Why am I the, the guy that's obeying all the rules? And I think that begins to carry over into the decision of people to be on juries, to participate in government, to make sure we have clean water, to make sure that um, they're not polluting the air with their cars that need to be serviced. In other words, you just if we're not going to all participate in the social experiment of our democracy— then, and it is an experiment. <laughs> well, then what drives me crazy is once it reaches a tipping point where everybody's dissatisfied, these governors hold these press conferences and announce they're putting money into anti-shoplifting crusades. They're going to put all these cops together to stop it. It's crazy. They could nip it in the bud at the local level if they wanted to. It is clear to me they don't want to. I'm not sure what's behind it, but I hear this more and more, particularly for minority communities, Serge. I'm curious if you have a – I hear more and more this is by design. In mm-hmm. other words, it's hard to believe that this amount of chaos is coincidental. I have to agree with you. And when you talk about just on a basic level, I feel like no one can be deterred from doing what's morally right. You know what I mean? So once you start changing 
the definition of what's morally right, look at what we're getting. I mean, there are things we could go into that we have now in our society that 30 years ago weren't even a worry. One of the things that that these shoplifters benefit from is this kind of liberal... Uh, I guess, meme that mothers are stealing bread for their hungry children. Look, you and I, Serge, are not losing any sleep about a mother who shoplifts bread for her hungry children. Nope. Uh, Nope. The ish, but but this is not what we're seeing. We're seeing gangs of people at these high-end stores. And as as we did an episode, it's not a theft, it's a robbery because they're Mm -hmm. using intimidation and force to take by force that which is uh, not theirs. How anybody in this country rationalizes that is acceptable, absolutely beyond my comprehension, and I can't help but believe it is by design. Well, people can always rationalize things that don't or that they don't perceive directly affect them. They can rationalize them. But once they start to affect them, it's like, oh, please, everybody on board. We got to call up everybody. Well, call Don King, Donald Trump, call DJ Quick, Kid Capri, call everybody. I need help. Well, I... I wonder about these politicians who are, some of them are getting up there in years who are facing their retirement. Where's that retirement income going to come from? Because if you don't have taxpayers and you don't have capitalism, you don't have uh, a way that the market is is generating income for which people can make income, can pay taxes and so on and so forth, your retirement's not going to be so so pretty. Pretty simple. So I don't know what these people think, but they just keep lining their pockets And And that's the thing. Capitalism, this love story, the people who keep lining their pockets. And we talk about these politicians all the time. They go in for a $175,000 a year job because they claim they want to do better for the country. And uh, then they walk out multimillionaires. And then we wonder how. (laughs) No, it's all inside. You know this. Of course. They're all doing insider trading. Of course. Well, listen, Thank you very much to our listeners. This has been 100 episodes. Thank you for letting Serge and I just have an episode to ourselves where we talked about how this came to be. Thank all of you and then update you on the stories we've done so far. I want to update our listeners about what we're going to do for the future. It's our hope that in the next 30 days, we'll be designing at least two things. One, we'll be able to do podcasts with remote guests. So that if you have a guest that's not living in the Maryland area who would like to join us, we'll be able to record that. And two, we're hoping to bring up a YouTube channel to promote the podcast. Now, I will I will tell you, I know about as much about YouTube as I know about uh, <laughs> surfing. So it's going to be an uphill battle, but Serge and I have conquered. We, we know the technology now of up loading podcasts, so we'll have to learn how to do YouTube. I thought you surfed, Clark. It must be the ponytail. I have never surfed. (laughs) Must be the ponytail. It must be. (laughs) Well, I'd like to say before we go that once again, we're happy, we're proud, and we're going to continue to eradicate all abuses from all corners of the justice system, one podcast episode at a time. And like Clark said, we're working on a YouTube channel so that we can, you know, show people our lovely, lovely mugs. <laughs> Thank you very much. And like the man of La Mancha, we're tilting at windmills. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you. But life is never easy. There's work to be done and obligations to be met. Obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. 
This podcast is the copyrighted property of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines Incorporated, a Maryland corporation. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the written permission of the owner is prohibited. For more information, we invite you to visit the website, blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com. All of the words in the URL address use common spelling and are typed together with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we welcome your remarks through email. The email addresses of the co-creators, Serge Antonin and Clark Ollers, may be found on the website.